0: The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see A16Z.com disclosures. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Hannah, and this is BioEats World, our show where we talk about all the ways that our ability to engineer biology and re-engineer healthcare is transforming the future. And when it comes to re-engineering healthcare, there's one concept that gets a whole lot of airtime, the concept of value-based care. Value-based care is a term that we've thrown around on many different episodes about how the healthcare system is evolving, but we've never really gone straight to the heart of the matter. So that's what we do in this episode with Todd Park, co-founder and executive chairman of Devoted Health and formerly chief technology officer and tech advisor for President Barack Obama, along with A16Z general partner Vijay Pandey and me, Hannah. So what exactly is this big megatrend of value-based care all about? And how is it redefining what we think of as medicine, treatments, and healthcare? What does it mean for doctors and patients, insurers, and policymakers? Why is now the moment for this big shift, and what exactly is tech's role in it? We hear the term value-based care thrown around an awful lot. But we've never really talked about exactly what that means. So this conversation is really about what is value-based care? How do we implement it? Why is it better? And what is technology's role in that? So maybe we could just start with how is it different from how we think of the healthcare system today?
1: Oh, it's really different from how the healthcare system generally works today. Right. (laughs) Famously or infamously. Yeah,
2: (laughs) even aspirationally. I mean, when you think about how the plumbing works. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah.
1: And the, the the root cause, honestly, is how the healthcare system is paid for. Right. So historically, uh, U.S. healthcare has been paid for in uh, what's called a fee-for-service frame,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: So uh, doctors and hospitals and healthcare providers are paid per thing they do, right? per doctor visit, per test, per surgery, per hospital stay. And that has led to a situation where we have rapidly escalating volumes of services being delivered. But unfortunately, we don't actually have commensurately improving outcomes, right? We, we spend the most per capita of any country in the world, and we rank at the bottom of the developed world uh, on metrics like avoidable death, preventable death, mm-hmm. adverse events, uh, healthy life expectancy. Uh, and that's because we, we fundamentally have a pay-for-volume payment system that if you want to change the situation, then change how healthcare is paid for, right? basically move away from pay for pure volume to engage in value-based payment, uh, which in a nutshell is a payment system that actually financially supports and aids in the vets, right care, right place, right time. Value-based care to me is the right care, including non-clinical support, delivered in a consistent, coordinated, proactive way that both improves outcomes and lowers costs, That would save money.
2: It's interesting to think about how this came about historically, basically a perk given to workers to help them stay with a uh, given employer instead of somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so that perk was like, you know, we'll, we'll get together and we'll pay f- For your medical bills or pay for things, it's kind of akin to like I don't know, like if we gave a perk to say we're going to pay for your plumber bills or something like that. You know, if you if you have some major catastrophic problem, we'll pay for the plumbing. But that doesn't mean we're going to keep track of your house or try to see if your plumbing is in good shape or Mm -hmm. or sort of avoid the problems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're not paying for that. That was never sort of part of the plan. We're not paying for copper
0: pipes. We're paying (laughs) for when something something really when
2: when the when the pipes burst. (laughs) Yeah, you know, but we're not paying for sort of. Uh, maintaining your house. Mm -hmm. That's something that was always assumed to be sort of on the patient side, so to speak. And actually the thing is we've gotten very good at trying to come up with therapies for cancer, for um, stroke, for massive heart disease. But what we've come to realize is that that's actually more expensive mm-hmm. because if we wait that long, those therapies can work, but they're crazy expensive and painful uh, in many different ways, emotionally, physically for the patient. We want to get there before the pipes burst. Think about the, the house and the, the overall health of it.
0: So can we talk about like when this concept started to emerge, why there was sort of this gradual dawning of realization that this was a better North Star to orient towards, or would everyone say this is a better North Star?
1: I think in the last five years mm-hmm. that uh, the move to value-based payment and care has gone from is it going to happen mm-hmm. to it's going to happen. It's just a question of how fast. It's an idea that's been around for, for, for decades. I mean, it goes in the category of super obvious idea. Right,
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: So for example, you know, if you have uh, diabetes or mm-hmm. hypertension or congestive heart failure, there's an incredibly well-known best practice pathway in the form of medication regimes that get adjusted um, based on uh, each patient's evolving situation, along with very basic coaching uh, on diet and activity. It's very, very straightforward to execute. If I'm a primary care doctor being paid fee for service and I've got a patient in front of me who has diabetes and hypertension, and I wanna spend an hour with that person to really help educate them about their condition, and really get into it in terms of coaching and what to do, in terms of uh, coordinating their care and providing them with the right support, I literally can't afford to do it because I have to actually in that same hour see another three patients and get paid the fee per those services to stay alive. (laughs) It is a bankrupting action for me to actually spend the extra hour. It is far more difficult to actually financially support and execute those pathways than it should be poorly controlled chronic illness is the greatest single driver of more serious events like heart attacks, strokes, kidney disease, eye and nerve damage, and vascular disease. Um, and it's just nuts that <laughs> we as a country don't do these incredibly basic things to keep people healthy with yeah. these chronic conditions. Yeah. In addition to this patient being cared for the way they should be, You will save so much money because I'm going to actually save you one, two, three hospitalizations that cost $20,000 each. We've invested so much Mm -hmm. in developing incredibly advanced therapies for acute situations, Uh, but we aren't doing the basics because systemic execution of the basics with process control and improvement that every industry would find routine, right? It really does require value-based payment and value-based care as the paradigm to make that
2: happen. Yeah, otherwise there's no incentive.
0: Right. Todd, when you say the right care at the right place in the right time, can you talk about what exactly that means and then what that would mean on the entire country model?
1: Maybe the simplest way to explain it is that as opposed to me as a primary care doctor being paid X dollars, right, to see people for 15 minutes, <laughs> all right? Instead, um, I basically um, am given what's in effect a uh, global budget uh, for all medical spending, physician, drugs, tests, surgeries, hospital stays, for my patients. And it's risk-adjusted, right? So if I've got a a patient panel that has um, significantly uh, sicker patients, then my budget's higher, right? Because essentially, the budget's set to be equal to what the healthcare system has generally been spending to care for folks in a situation where patients have not been getting, in a systematic, universal way, right care, right place, right time, right? Highly prevention-oriented care. So I have this budget that I'm working off of. And my goal as a primary doctor is to proactively get patients the right care in the right place at the right time. And if you do that, then it's been shown, for example, that you can cut hospitalizations versus the status quo by like 40% (laughs) or more. Incredible! It's a significantly positive financial ROI transaction for them because the way these arrangements work is that they get a share of the savings from keeping folks out of the hospital. That's why primary care doctors are so much happier when you put them in value-based payment arrangements because actually under those arrangements, they can afford to spend that extra time with the patient. They can afford to hire personnel on their teams to help care for that patient and give them the really straightforward care and support that those patients need to actually stay healthy out of the hospital. So the primary care doctor basically, generally speaking, like doubles their pay under value-based payment By delivering care the way they always thought they were going to when they graduated from med school as a bonus, then you significantly increase your pay because you're saving the healthcare system (laughs) so much money.
2: Well, and the proof of this uh, is where you have a cohort at risk and it's the same provider and the the outcomes are fundamentally different.
1: Oh, yeah. And the evidence is just conclusive As, as well as it being like, you know, commonsensical.
0: It strikes me that in the category of super, super obvious, you know, but it's a different way of measuring and it takes a different kind of amount of time, a sort of different perspective. So like, how do you overcome that challenge to measure how long somebody stays healthy for?
1: Right. So one interesting challenge that primary care doctors face is uh, the so-called foot in two boats challenge. It's part of the uh, exercise of transmogrifying from a fee-for-service paid operation to a value-based paid operation because, uh, you know, fundamentally, they're two completely different kinds of operations, right? So in in a fee-for-service paid operation, if you're a primary doctor, you just have to maximize throughput in order to actually stay alive. In a value-based payment paid mode of operation, you're focused on how do I take the best possible proactive care of my patients and keep them out of harm's way, (laughs) right?
0: Prevention. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Right. Much more proactive, personalized care of people, and following up with them out of the uh, office uh, to ensure that they have their medications, any changes in their circumstance actually uh, get reflected in a change in their in their treatment, um, and uh, that uh, things are going well, and they have the right support, uh, and the right iterations are made to their care.
0: So it's a different muscle.
1: It's yeah. It's a completely different mode of operation. Yeah. And so the foot in two boats problem, right, is a famous articulation of this of this problem. What if part of my patients are being paid for fee-for-service and part of my patient panel is being paid in a value-based payment.
0: Yeah. Mode?
1: Then like I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to do max throughput and also <laughs>
0: proactive, systematic yeah. care. Yeah, and you're stretched super thin. And, 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 yeah. and you're
1: trying to be like two different modes at once, right? Yeah. That's why the most successful provider organizations under value-based payment have gone all in on one boat. And that's helped by the fact that, for example, like Kaiser uh, and Caremore have a built-in health insurance plan inside themselves that then actually... pays in a value-based way, the providers that they employ that operate in a value-based way.
0: So is that part of the reason why we haven't seen it happen faster? Because you kind of have to create something from the ground up that is a total systemic shift?
1: I think that's a really, really good way of encapsulating uh, why
0: Mm -hmm. Um, there hasn't
1: been this kind of uh, shift nationally, uh, because you have to go all in. And so, you know, as you think about like the Kaisers and the Caremores and even the Chen Meds, they take global risk payments from health plans, meaning like they go to health plans and say like, pay me um, a global capitation payment in effect for all care expense, right? So they, they in fact, are their own kind of mini payer, if you will, right? And their existence proofs that if you actually do that and you get people the right care in the right place at the right time it both leads to significant improvement in outcomes and lower costs. So the common denominator across the successful uh, early American experiments is that they're a full payer provider stack that can therefore actually act uh, with the right incentives. Uh, and by the way, you know, have the right information at the fingertips to then take the right care of people in the right place at the right time. That is a really tall order <laughs> to yeah. replicate because the rest of America is like neck deep in fee for service, and the payers pay fee for service. The providers operate fee for service. All of their business systems and operations are optimized for fee for service.
0: Yeah, it sounds like trying to to renovate the foundation of a house, almost. Right. You, you yeah. just
1: got you just got to honestly roll in with a new house. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Build one. That, that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's
1: effectively the magnitude of the challenge. That's 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 a good way to think about it. And so the question has been like, how do we as a country take those archetypes, like take those results, and scale them? to much more of the country, to the whole country, Mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, it being uh, available and accessible to limited populations of people in certain pockets of the country.
2: The other thing Todd really pointed directly to is that we have a sense for what to do, but how do you scale it? You have all this data and all this logistics, and it's just having to make tons of different decisions in complicated ways. And this, ironically, seems like something that's very well suited for tech something where uh, if you could build the infrastructure to do that, you could take all the little things that have to be done and do them that much more efficiently. Think about something like Amazon. Amazon and Sears, they both sell things. And actually, they both sell things over the internet. But that by taking a tech-first approach all the way through, uh, whether we're talking about the website or the back end or delivery, just everything, that's the best bet to try to m- sort of save and improve every little part because there's not going to be a, silver bullet that like with this one idea or when this killer algorithm suddenly uh, healthcare is solved or healthcare is is easy or cheap, it's going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of little things.
0: When you say tech from A to Z and there's no one silver bullet, but it's all little aspects and incremental accelerations or improvements, what exactly do you mean? Where does it look different?
1: You have to think about it as honestly reinventing each layer of the stack of American healthcare. You want to have uh, a health insurance plan layer that's explicitly optimized from birth to support value-based payment and care. Um, So the historical American health insurance company was born in a world, as Vijay said, right, where they're paying fee-for-service bills, right, Um, and um, so that's what they did. (laughs) Um, And as those bills began piling up at escalating speed, their response was say, okay. I'm going to erect administrative infrastructure that micromanages doctors and patients and polices what they're able to do by making them ask me and me get permission, right? That's probably not how they pitched it to people, but that's effectively what it was. (laughs)
2: Because the one thing they can do is say no.
1: Right. So utilization management and pre authorization, right? And things that for all the physicians listening to this are epithets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that then led to uh, doctors, by the way, like erecting their own administrative infrastructure to interact with the payers, right? Uh, to make arguments about what should actually be, able to be done and be paid for, which is massively escalated administrative spending on healthcare in huh. America, right? Yeah. And it also led to escalating mistrust, <laughs> distrust uh, between patients and insurers, and doctors, and insurers, and it's just generally not solved the problem. You want a payer that says, look, we're not going to pay a fee for service. We're going to actually pay in a value-based way, which is a totally different mode of payment.
0: But that feels like it's about, again, a kind of framework and mindset shift and payment shift, but not, I don't understand tech's element in that.
1: You cannot do anything I just said without software. And you certainly can't do it scalable without software. So first of all, you know the notion of paying a primary care doctor in a value-based way. You've got to be able to, uh, for that patient panel, uh, for that doctor, set the right risk-adjusted global budget. Right. You got to actually be able to track everything that actually happens, um, and so you're giving the doctor visibility uh, into what's happening to their patient base, um, and you've got to provide the doctor with data from like all points of the compass, mm-hmm. right? Pharmacy data, lab data. Uh, electronic medical record data, right? Claims data about what kind of care the patient's getting from across the system to put all that at the doctor's fingertips to actually make sure this person is healthy. Beyond that, you really need to establish a relationship with the member <laughs> that is uh, incredibly supportive, where you're also getting the member information. Uh, about where they stand and what needs to happen before they even know it.
0: So there's like a whole other information flow happening. That's right, that's right. So
1: Mark Smith, who's a visionary healthcare leader, uh, has this great analogy that he tells. He says, I go to Harris Casino and before I even know I'm thirsty, there's someone there with a drink, (laughs) right? Just when I'm about to leave uh, the blackjack table, someone says, can we comp you some free food? (laughs) 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 Take some too by
0: magic, yeah. Exactly,
1: right? And so he says in all seriousness, healthcare needs to be like that, right? So before you even realize, right, that you're about to have a problem, right, that someone calls you and says, hey, I think you might want to uh, actually get this med. (laughs) I think I might want to see you um, and uh, check something out. If if the American health system operated like Harris Casino, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it would would save many more lives and cost a lot less. And this is a classic data and tech problem. I have friends who work in AI uh, in healthcare. And I said, look, at this point, like the holes in American healthcare are so big, you can see them from space. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so someone hasn't refilled their bed, right. they have to kill this. they right. don't take their bed, they're going to the hospital, right? And so the low-hanging fruit in US healthcare is uh, so plentiful. I mean, it's in fruit pies on the ground, yeah. right, with a cold glass of milk next to it. I mean, there's so much progress we can make if we apply tech-enabled process control and improvement. It's been routine in virtually every other industry to healthcare. But to do that, you need to actually have a full-stack payer-provider ecosystem where there is a business case for the use of those approaches.
2: Well, all of the innovation we've been thinking about has been, let's say, in therapeutics or how medicine is done What we're really talking about is basically how to get better at the existing game. If the game is fee-for-service, how to do lots of services, better services, more services. Almost like um, if you're building a machine to do chess, you can do chess really fast. But this is about getting rid of the chessboard entirely and playing a different game. The role points, and given it's the whole stack, that's really, really hard to do. But to your point, I think it is particularly intriguing to ask now, if we're going to start with a new game, how can we set up the game to have the best chance to win the best chance to be benefit of patients and to reduce costs? How do you construct that game? How do we make sure that we're constructing the right game because whatever game we do, someone's going to try to win and we'll win at those rules, but that may not be what's best for patients and may not be what's best for cost
0: It's interesting because when you're describing this, i'm thinking about all the ways that you know healthcare as an industry is like particularly challenging to introduce innovation into because of how unique it is because of how there are certain regulatory hurdles. And I'm also thinking about, you know, the, the sort of move towards more consumer facing, right. And like the market driven forces, you know, that are pushing in that direction. So I'm going to ask either like a really hard or really dumb question. I don't know which it is, but like, how does this value-based shift work with that kind of market-driven shift? Yeah. You know, you see these two big sort of forces. Are they opposing tides? Are they yeah. kind of, do they come together? What What's the fit between those two?
1: So in a nutshell, look, if you lower cost and improve outcomes, you can actually put a better health plan product in front of people in a market like the Medicare Advantage market and more people uh, will buy it.
0: <laughs> so it's quality, really. It's, it's
1: quality and it's cost savings. Yeah. And then the ability to use those cost savings to fund better benefits uh, in your health plan than the competition. And this intersects with consumerization, right? So in a market where you can offer a health plan uh, that is better for consumers to buy, there's also a significant positive ROI in investing in and delivering on a world-class consumer experience. Uh, Why is this? Because if you actually deliver a world-class consumer experience, uh, that's both helpful to you as you seek to win more customers, but it's also directly helpful to your ability to deliver better outcomes and lower cost. Why? Because if you're actually working with a member and they do not trust you, then when you ping them and say, I think you... It Uh, all breaks
0: down. The screening
1: or, yeah, the the, the member will say pound sand. (laughs) I don't trust you further than I can throw you. So it's
0: about strengthening the relationship so that when you need to direct them, it works. exactly.
1: Both when you need to direct them, they will actually listen to you. And B, when they have a problem, they'll call you.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah.
1: As Atul Gawande says, the true superpower of a primarker doctor is that people will tell them things that they don't tell anyone else. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. So basically a patient will call a doctor and say, I am not feeling so great about X, right? And that's an early warning signal <laughs> to right. jump on. Right. So so if you are a health plan and you are genuinely trusted by your members, not only will they listen to you when you call them and suggest something or ping them, right? And suggest something. They tell
0: something, you more important stuff.
1: They will call and say, you know, I'm having this issue. I'm not sure what's going on can you
0: help me? Yeah. So if this shift towards this model depends on kind of gathering new types of data and knitting them into kind of a more holistic picture of the patient for the provider and for the whole healthcare system, what are the types of information that we're using now that we haven't been using before? How are we thinking about that whole picture of the patient in a different way? And what is it that we need from the provider lens for this whole model to work?
1: Yes. And so, uh, so building on what we were talking about earlier uh, about the uh, operation of a primary care physician practice, right? You're really moving from a paradigm where you're maximizing throughput <laughs> yeah. to a paradigm where you are maximizing the outcomes you're delivering to patients. And so armed with the right comprehensive data, you want to actually make sure um, that uh, uh, you are Getting members the right care at right place, right time in a highly coordinated, proactive way. So, the role that the technology plays in that is, uh, you know, not just the assembly of that data and the uh, catalyzing of the right action, but also actually enabling virtual care and home care on an epic scale. Because it's increasingly obvious that the right place, much of the time, for the right care is the home.
0: Right not getting you into the ER, not in a hospital. Or
1: or forcing you to come to a medical office, right? So going back to the earlier examples of someone who has diabetes or hypertension or congestive heart failure, right? Um, As opposed to you going into the medical office, right? Which is a big logistical exercise and getting a measurement taken. And then the doctor deciding to put you on this particular med and say, come back in three months. And you come back in three months and they make another adjustment and then so on and so forth, right? Uh, So that takes months or years uh, to get your chronic condition in control. Instead, right, uh, a patient has a continuous glucose monitor um, that streams data into software, right, has a, a wireless scale streaming data into software, um, has a wireless blood pressure cuff streaming data into software, uh, which then analyzes the data in combination with humans if necessary, then triggers a set of actions where the care provider uh, can then basically, through a televisit, say, okay, I'm going to adjust your med by X, right? And then see in 24 hours what the result was, and then adjust it again, then adjust it again, adjust it again. And within within a matter of one to two weeks, literally get that chronic condition under control vis-a-vis a a pattern in the old world where it would take months or years. And in a way that's dramatically more convenient for the patient, you're basically uh, dramatically through remote monitoring, and uh, virtual visits uh, aided by software, you're both detecting issues a lot earlier and you are increasing by an order or orders of magnitude the speed of intervene, see what happens, and adjust.
0: Mm-hmm. The whole feedback loop becomes much faster.
1: Exactly. Yep. That's one of the many possible examples, but overall, that's what's happening. The accessibility of care dramatically improves the richness and the uh, timeliness of information dramatically improves the frequency of touch points dramatically improves and uh, you experience a significant acceleration of improvement of outcomes and associated with that lowering of cost
0: so i'm thinking about you know providers listening to this and thinking, you know, that, well, the information itself sounds like a dream to have all that at your fingertips, right? To understand all that about your patients, but actually parsing all of that. How do we make sure that we deliver that to providers in a way that it's not this giant, like hairball mess of more data and information that then they need another administrative layer just to figure that out?
1: Well, uh, this is the classic problem where software could help. Yeah. is helping today. What I would say is that the optimal approach uh, to acting on this opportunity is where you're fusing software and humans together in an optimal combination, right? Such that you can actually deliver the actual result.
0: Right. So it's precisely where those two meet that you have to make sure it's it's joining well. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You, you <laughs> yeah. want you want to you want to, you want to design a tech-enabled service uh, which leverages both software and humans in the right combination, with software doing a ton of the work. Uh, to be able to efficiently, effectively, and scalably actually deliver the actual outcome to the patient.
0: So if we're talking about this massive shift from you know treating sick people, treating chronically ill, to keeping people healthy, healthier, preventing illness, catching it earlier, how do we begin to shift the whole system kind of conceptually around that? What other types of information do we need to be thinking about Transportation, food security, or new types of treatment—you know—that we haven't been thinking about.
1: So, if you have a full pay viador stack, and by that I mean a payer and provider of healthcare stack that is optimized for value-based payment and care, one inevitable additional layer of action that you take on is non-clinical drivers of terrible health outcomes. And again, you talk to every primary care doctor in America and they say, a huge portion of what actually drives terrible health outcomes for my patients are not clinical. So social determinants like transportation, food, how your house is equipped, social and emotional support, et cetera. I've talked to primary doctors in Florida who say, you know what the number one thing is that you could do uh, to help people with COPD in Florida and reduce adverse clinical events? Know what? Get them air conditioning. No. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the things, it makes a lot of sense for pay Vidor stacks to provide aid to members that includes uh, fixing up your bathroom with bars and mats that stop you from slipping and breaking Oh your my
0: gosh, yeah. Uh,
1: being able to actually get you healthy food uh, right. that is tailored for your chronic condition. And other non-clinical uh, artifacts and services that have a huge impact on ultimate clinical status and health status.
0: It's so interesting because while you're while you're telling that story I'm thinking about the unseen caregivers of those patients that are doing those things now and how if the healthcare system can take over that role of you know the son or the daughter whoever it is taking care of that person that needs that extra air conditioner or needs the handrails set up it feels like the healthcare system is doing more but it's actually making it more cost-efficient. It feels like everybody wins then.
1: And I think you hit, hit upon something very important there in that uh, to the average patient, the American healthcare system can seem very forbidding mm-hmm. and confusing and fragmented. And it's very hard to understand. It's a healthcare system, by the way, that only works when it works because the individual doctors and nurses in it are by far the best in human history. (laughs) The problem with our healthcare system isn't the doctors and the nurses, right? I mean, far from it. It's that the system in which these professionals are operating is so disorganized, fragmented, confusing, incentive misaligned, information poor, reactive. The notion of having a professional daughter and son
0: uh, to help
1: you navigate the system as a patient and be able to get the right care, right place, right time is I think a crucial, crucial role. Uh, and that's, uh, again, another role where technology uh, can be extraordinarily helpful <laughs> uh, in, in helping that to happen. So a major barrier for a lot of patients is literally transportation, is the mm-hmm. ability to literally get to your doctor's appointment uh, or get to where you, you have to go um, as right. you travel through the healthcare system. Yeah, And so a very significant benefit to... Uh, patients getting the right care at the right times to actually provide them with medical transportation.
0: Right, it's not just the doctor's visit; it's getting to and from it's the doctor. Literally
1: visit. getting to and from the doctor. <laughs> Key, really important, and a completely solvable problem in a tech-enabled way.
2: You know The thing about social determinants is that I think there's so much low-lying fruit there. It's not something where people have put much effort. It's not something that payers have really thought about. And so there's a huge opportunity for just actually applying uh, analytics, data science, tech to figuring out what these low-lying fruit areas are uh, and what could be done about it. It's, um, it's probably not even a hell of a lot of dollars. It's probably just figuring out what's the best place and what's the biggest need and when is that need. And that combination of who, what, where, when, you know, that's particularly hard to figure out. If we could provide like a coach or a parent or like a doctor that was with you twenty four seven, that person would probably know. But we can't know that. So that is where tech could sort of fill in the gaps.
0: So, you know, just to go back to where we began and think a little bit about this sort of major new orientation towards like, it's a very obvious shift, but it is a massive shift to make for the system, right? When the entire architecture of the system and the way it's been developed over the last decades and the mindsets and the education and the processes, all those things have to be shifted. If you were able to kind of full stack the entire system, if you were able to start from scratch, what would that look like today? What is a real revolution in American healthcare look like?
2: Or I would love to just go right at the question, which is what would it take to make the American healthcare system the envy of the world?
1: I think a way that the U.S. can leapfrog going from uh, bottom of the rankings of the developed world <laughs> to the top mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is to make an increasingly strong move toward value-based payment and care uh, see the rise of more and more tech-enabled pay-by-door stacks across the country, um, have those tech-enabled pay-by-door stacks in all their different forms uh, compete uh, with I- increasing energy mm-hmm. <laughs> on the basis of outcomes and cost and consumer experience.
2: And, and mm-hmm. fueling, fueling
1: innovation that way. And fueling massive innovation, right? Versus if the entire U.S. health system were actually being run centrally. You know? Right. Uh, we just have to get to a place where we create the right magnetic field from an incentive standpoint by continuing to move strongly toward value based payment so that value based care innovation and value delivery innovation uh, can really blossom uh, through these tech enabled provider stacks and all their configurations competing with each other.
2: Well, how can that come to be? I think that makes a lot of sense from sort of the bottom up, but like, how do we get to it from the top down?
1: I actually think that. In the Medicare space, all the conditions already exist to enable this to happen. Hmm. Um, it is entirely possible to build tech-enabled pay provider stacks that are wired for value-based payment and care with no incremental policy change. One key to that is that uh, in the Medicare space, say the average Medicare Advantage plan keeps a member for eight years. And the cycle time between intervening and helping and saving money is short given the population. And so that means that if you're a tech enabled payvidor, tech-enabled pay by door stack in the Medicare space, you have a very strong business case to make investments in better care, and you'll realize the payoff. One challenge in value-based, care-oriented, pay by door stacks in the under 65 segment of the population is that people tend to have their insurance plan for far shorter than eight years. Uh, and so, uh, and that's
0: because you change jobs, you change people change jobs, situations, they, they, they yeah,
1: move from Medicaid to the exchange to an employee right. to back. Um, and the cycle times between intervention, and payoff, uh, on average, tend to be longer, uh, because you are dealing with a population right that doesn't have the level of illness burden uh, of, of seniors. So uh, I think a really interesting area of policy innovation could be, how would you actually solve that problem? Because if you did, then I think that it would then create the right kind of business case support to do the tech enabled provider play yep. outside the Medicare space. I think it's still possible to do. It's just a lot harder for this reason.
0: And to your point about like the importance of the relationship with the patient, right? In ter- being such a powerful tool That's when you right. only have a short term relationship. That's right.
2: You know, what we've been talking about is really trying to. Innovate a system that is a complicated system of analytics, decision making, logistics. These are all things that um, are, uh, in many other areas, uh, well approached by tech, well improved by tech if you think about even just the A-B testing for websites or or for services or for anything, that just constantly sort of trying new things, experimenting, having the analytics, seeing if it improves and carry on. Ironically, that's also not aliens of medicine. That's also an RCT in a sense. I think the idea is that we need to innovate. We need to try new things, see what works, see how it changes outcomes and incent people to do it. Once you realize that You can set up a system where we are uh, incented for innovation. That will automatically bring tech in.
0: A system that's incented for value, that's incented for innovation, and that's incented for actual health before we even get sick. Thanks so much for joining us on BioEats World. If you'd like to hear more about all the ways biology is technology, please go subscribe to the A16Z bio newsletter at a16z.com newsletter. And of course, subscribe to BioEats World anywhere you listen to podcasts.